0: Welcome to the Legitimate Interests Podcast, where we talk all things data privacy and compliance. Here is your host,
1: privacy lawyer and head of legal at Catch, Robert Cunningham.
0: All right. Well, I want to know about what you think <laughs> in in your oracular wisdom, Alan. Tell us a little about the what I deem the near future of ad tech, because when you talk about the future, yeah. Nobody believes anyone can predict the future. So let's call it the near future of ad tech. You wrote an article recently about where you think Google's head is at, for example, and where you think the, well, what I'm immediately doing is conflating the future of ad tech and the future of Google. And I'm I'm not ashamed to, to make that conflation. But maybe you can give us your thoughts briefly on what you were talking about in that article, and then we can dig in to some of the details.
1: Yeah, so I, I think that there's been a tension between the digital advertising world and the browser world that goes back, I don't know, 12, 15 years. I mean, there was, you know, back when uh, uh, Internet Explorer was blocking third-party cookies and then was going to set Do Not Track on by default. Um, you know, more recently, say in the last three to five years, you know, Apple, uh, Safari has always you know treated... Uh, Third-party cookies, uh, somewhat suspiciously, Uh, they've taken some additional steps over the last year or two uh, to really restrict not only third-party cookies but just about any form of cookie. Um, You know, Apple does that purportedly to, uh, you know, as a boon to consumer privacy. But you know, you you know, you have to mention in the same breath that Apple doesn't really have an advertising business to speak of. And so, yeah. um, so you know they're competing in areas where they're strong and trying to go at their competitors, you know, Google, uh, yeah, Facebook, uh, where they are less strong. And, and so all, all's fair there. Uh, but what's happened over the last year uh, is that uh, Google's Chrome browser has announced that they are also going to start blocking or depreciating third-party cookies. And um, you know, Google had always been seen as the frenemy because you knew they were growing and you knew that they were taking a percentage of your market share, uh, but at least they weren't blocking third-party cookies and you could you know, gravitate towards Chrome in a way that, that you were wary of trying to gravitate towards uh, with uh, Safari or Firefox or really any of the other browsers. And Alan, um, so, when, you,
0: when you say you, am I correct that you're, you're, you're speaking as a publisher?
1: Well, I think as a publisher and as somebody in the digital advertising world, certainly in the ad tech and martech communities, right. and 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 so, uh, so now you know we've been living for almost a year with the specter of Google uh, or Chrome, being part of Google blocking third-party cookies. Now, as part and parcel to those conversations, Google uh, somewhat magnanimously, at least in the opinion of, of Google, uh, has set up a W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, uh, which is a standards body. And they've set up uh, basically a, a business group, which is a discussion group, uh, where Google has uh, crafted uh, what, what comes down to their own advertising platform that will be operated and controlled uh, by the Chrome browser. And it will use a differential privacy uh, focus uh, so that no one entity other than Google and Chrome will be able to have any of the data that, uh, about user behavior on the Chrome browser. And that uh, entities will use that advertising tool, uh, hopefully, if, if they're able to get this thing launched and they're able to get something resembling industry consensus, although I'm not positive industry consensus is, is either required or the long-term goal, I think, the long-term goal might be just the perception of industry consensus, uh, but 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 in any event, there's this W3C working group that is attempting to use a multi-stakeholder process to create a advertising platform within the Chrome browser, and so uh, now there, there's an open question about what you know Google's uh, real motivations are there, and and what their long-term Thinking is. Now, I think when it comes to motivations, I, I think you have to start with Google is certainly under pressure from regulators to emulate uh, Apple, at least to an extent. And and so Apple has blocked uh, third party cookies. And so, you know, Chrome arguably is, is going to eventually have to do the same thing.
0: Yeah. And as we, I think, discussed, the cookie business is getting, even for, Goliaths like Google, death by a thousand cuts, not death, but significant bloodshed by a thousand cuts is becoming conceivable, even for the Googles of the world. I think the Keneal took a hundred million euro chunk out of them a couple of weeks ago, right? It's, it's still obviously not uh, mortal, but it's annoying to say the least to, to be in the third party cookie game and having to achieve transparency goals that may be unrealistic or extremely hard to achieve.
1: Well, and Google has got that, you know, they've got the bazillion dollar target on their back. And so um, so I I think that Google's strategy is predicated on three different realizations. The first is that a government mandated breakup of Google is likely and, and might even be imminent. Uh, You've got entities. The Department of Justice starts a trial in a year. You've got uh, the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK. You've got the EU Commission. You've got uh, in Australia, there's a number of entities worldwide. And I forgot about the Federal Trade Commission. You've got a number of entities worldwide that are looking into what what may be considered anti-competitive behavior uh, on behalf of Google. And I I also forgot to mention the the Texas uh, uh, complaint, which Boy, I'll tell you, if, if half of that uh, turns out to be accurate, uh, that would seem like uh, there may, may be some trouble for Google over the long term.
0: Yeah, and for, for our listeners who may be less familiar, Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, that's the one where there have been revelations of potentially, essentially, uh, price, not price antitrust agreements, uh, agreements in restraint of trade between Google and Facebook with respect to uh, the markets uh, that would be per se illegal under antitrust law, secret agreements between Facebook and Google.
1: Yeah, I, and and the, the reason that, that those complaints are really important, and again, I want to emphasize, you know, they haven't proven anything yet, so we're really still in the allegation stage. But the reason that they're important is that up until that point, there was sort of a sense that there might be something that smells a little fishy, but that current antitrust law was not adequately set up to necessarily address it. And so, you know, up until this complaint, most of the allegations were of the nature that, well, it, you've now got to change what you mean by antitrust law. And and that's a much heavier lift. So th- this is really important because I, I don't think that, again, assuming that these allegations are proven... Um, uh, you, I don't think they require a massive change in antitrust law. Um,
0: oh, that, that those allegations, I think, would have violated the Sherman Act a million, a million years ago, just as they could today. From, from what I understand from uh, my my coursework. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've been I've been diverting you a
0: little bit, but you you went in your article you went into some depth about where you think where you think this is going. For Google, so let me allow you
1: to get back to that. Yeah, yeah. So, so really, there's there's really three realizations. The first one we've talked about that that a, a government mandated breakup of Google is is certainly likely. Um, I think that realization number two is that cookies provide an audit path for regulators, and that same audit path may not be nearly as accessible uh, if you have a uh, mechanism that allows you to serve ads without using cookies. And then the third thing is that, you know, if you look at GDPR, and you mentioned, uh, I think it was the Keneal spine, but, but there's a number of entities within within the EU that, that all they need to do is see that a Google entity dropped a cookie uh, on certain time at a certain date. And, and then see what disclosures were made. And if they feel like those disclosures aren't up to snuff for whatever reason, that right there is another fine. And so Google is potentially staring at, you know, hundreds of millions of dollar fines on a regular basis coming from, you know, uh, a whole bunch of different jurisdictions all around the world. And so it, it occurs to me that perhaps Google's strategy is to do a preemptive sell-off of their third-party ad tech stack, the whole cookie stack. And while that may seem like a big like a big deal, because it's, what, $20 billion in, in annual revenue, um, I think that ge- Google is building uh, or has built its own internal advertising platform. You know, there's that XAD uh, and there's um, uh, AMP. There's a number of different ways that Google has access to a lot of the same data, not to mention that they're logged in users from, you know, 40 different programs owned and operated by by google so they may be able to serve you know maybe they may they may be able to serve effective targeted ads in the near term without the use of cookies and so my theory is is that google may be looking to spin off the the ad tech stack formerly known as DoubleClick and those associated companies as a preemptive measure so it looks like that you know they've taken uh, the concerns of regulators very seriously. Meanwhile, they've got their own ad tech stack that uh, that is not subject to the rules of the privacy sandbox they're creating. And anyway, that's just a thought. Uh, well, I like Google your- has, has n- neither confirmed nor denied this theory.
0: Yeah, you, your your technical understanding of these issues is as always illustrative because you point out. Busting people on cookie behavior is pretty easy. You and you and I can do it. Could I can do it all day long, and sometimes do. And regulators can certainly do it as well. But if you're talking about authenticated users through email addresses, and and that's a different that's a different uh, pool to go fishing in for regulators than it is to simply drive by your website and take a look uh, through the window and see what's going on. Much
1: easier to do that. Well,
0: go ahead.
1: Well, no, and 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 that's sort of been the the argument of a lot of the large platforms has been, oh, it's not us; it's these horrible third party entities. And so, what we're going to do, Congress or Justice Department or CMA, we're going to prevent those third parties from touching the data. But that's a that's a little bit of a head fake because the 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 you know it's great that you might be able to limit you know data collection and use by entities outside of your own walled gardens. However, that doesn't really address the data and collection and use of the walled gardens themselves. And uh, this gets back to my earlier comment, like, you know, somewhere in the, the, the privacy toolbox needs to be an evaluation of the scale of data being collected. Because what I grew up and, you know, I haven't read much Orwell in in a number of years but my recollection was that the concern was not a hundred different entities with some data the concern was one entity with all the data
0: well and as as we discussed earlier the alternative outside the increasingly robust walls of these gardens is something that might look like iab tcf which i think is admirable certainly in its in its inception and its goals, but it's a really messy consumer experience. So if you're trying to keep the scale of data and you are trying to pass consents around, it can look very, very messy. I think when you first described this to me, you said maybe, maybe you could describe what's, what potentially is happening with Google is an internalization of the ad tech ecosystem within one massive player, which essentially removes it from the purview Forget purview removes it as you described from the view, from the from the viewability of the regulators and puts it within Google's still lucrative, but now internal business.
1: Yep, exactly, and and then Google can say, well, look, we've we've ensured that these horrible third parties because those were the guys. Remember publishers; those are the guys that were really screwing you, and you, they can say, well, we've removed all of them. But at the end of the day. Um, I think the larger concern is what Google is doing with the data. I mean, take a look at just what the AMP platform alone does and Google's overall approach to it. Um, you know, again, th- I said this earlier, but something smells fishy.
0: It's hard not to think there's there's some truth there. There must be some people thinking about that because, you know, when I read that ICO report that came out pro- oh, probably over a year now about the state of, of ad tech um, and, and how it could coexist with European and in particular, UK regulation, it sometimes was lost in the shuffle that there was a conclusion, at least a preliminary conclusion in that report that the ad tech ecosystem or at least the real-time bidding ecosystem as currently then constituted was simply inconsistent with existing privacy law. Well, that's a if that's true, that's a big headache for people whose business mainly relies on the real-time bidding ad tech ecosystem. And if they are fundamentally inconsistent, then you might wanna look elsewhere or at least reconfigure the system in a in a way that's that's potentially consistent with existing law. And it sounds like you have a, an excellent theory for how that could be done by one of the main players in the space. Well, I recommend everyone go check out Ad Exchanger and search for Alan Chappelle in Google, and you'll find it. It's a great article. the The third thing I want to move to is probably a, a briefer touch on this one, but we've we've circled around this a little bit, which is enforcement. When I say enforcement, I, at least until this, this moment, have almost exclusively meant, you know, civil administrative fines by regulators against companies for breaking the law, namely GDPR, CCPA, e-privacy. You have heard us say, just in this conversation, things that sound a lot more like antitrust. And Alan has made reference to the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act and the competition authority in UK, the the CMA, I believe it is. My question and the topic I want to raise is, are we looking at enforcement too narrowly and perhaps are we looking at realization by some of the players that enforcement has been less successful than hoped and needs to move in a different direction? By that, I mean, it looks like it's shifting to a competition-based or an antitrust-based or some sort of broader-based inquisition of these companies, at least the larger ones, than the nickel and diming that we just described in the you know in the hundred million dollar the category. I'll give you an example. I was I was looking through some the IAPP is a wealth of information and, and education online. They have a web conference titled "The New." And I saw this after I came up with this contact, uh, this this topic. But the web webinar was titled, The New Convergence Between Privacy, Competition, and Consumer Regulation. So if I may pat myself on the back a little bit, that's essentially what I'm raising here. And I'm not an antitrust lawyer, but Alan is a a jack of all trades. So I wonder what you have to say about whether you think there's some truth to this shift away from we're going to find you a bunch of money to we're going to move you into breaking you up and deeming you a monopolist and your business is not consistent with overarching principles of fair commerce?
1: Well, you know, I I can say even three to five years ago, um, uh, privacy and uh, competition law were seen as two completely separate disciplines. And now, at least uh, when I'm talking about digital privacy and data protection, I find it almost impossible not to bring in uh, antitrust. Like, I, I almost think you just can't talk about one without mentioning the other at this point. So I think that your idea was certainly timely. The IAPP's, of course, was timely. Um, you know, uh, but, but the reality is that we've seen tremendous growth in a whole bunch of markets in the digital world over the last five to 10 years. And uh, for better or worse, uh, that growth uh, has been mostly unregulated not just on the privacy front, but just on on just about any front. Um, And, and maybe that's okay. I mean, you know, you, you had, uh, you know, it took, you know, how many years before Standard Oil was broken up? How many years until uh, Bell was broken up? You know, you you almost need to have, you know, enough growth, enough development, enough consumer demand. uh, And then you can take a look at what some of the societal ills are and then try to address those societal ills. Now, I think it's fair to, to opine on whether regulates, re- regulators are a little late to the party here. Uh, but, but, but the reality is, is that, you know, I, I don't know that um, many people, uh, other than me, maybe, were talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, um, the impact of sterner privacy laws on the larger competitive landscape.
0: And I wonder if it's more, what's the word, practical or banal than we're giving it credit for, if if that's the right way to put it, (coughs) excuse me. What I mean is we've heard for a long time that the relevant privacy regulators are understaffed and under-resourced and overwhelmed by these big dogs. My anecdotal understanding is that when you move to entities like the DOJ and the FTC and, and whatever the European competition authorities are, I think those folks might have a bigger wallet and swing a bigger bat than, than the Irish DPA might or the California AG's office might when it comes to enforcement of CCPA. Maybe it is as practical as moving the regulation to a more even fight uh, I, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but it seems like that would be at least factual, it has some factual basis in it.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, one of the arguments for higher fines, which is, you know, the GDPR sort of started this arms race. And now everybody seems to want to have a higher fine. Um, but but the, one of the arguments was that, well, our existing laws are very under, you know, enforced and uh, with the higher fine structure, that might serve two purposes. One is that that uh, it, if you could potentially be fined four percent of your global turnover, you might think you might act a little differently. Uh, but also that you know regulators who are you know if you're able to get that type of a fine, um, you know there may be a little bit more incentive to go after companies a little bit more aggressively. Uh, uh, but you know thus yeah. far. I you know I don't know has that really come to fruition in Europe over the last two years? I think in pockets it has, um, and I'm certainly not inviting any regulator to be more active necessarily. But but I think if you look at it, you say, you know, it perked up uh, activity a bit. But I don't know. I mean, has the you know the Cnil is the Cnil, and they're going to act a certain way. And I don't know that the fine structure has necessarily and you know changed their approach.
0: It's a factual question that could be answered and. Maybe I should do this work. i I see it rising. I see the, the the what I just described as perhaps the antiquated or ineffective version of enforcement rising with the the in particular being a recent one. but i do I do think that this shift to, as you say, the the inseparability of competition law and privacy law. Uh, antitrust, as we would call it over here, is happening, and and it should it should happen, and maybe it's not deliberate. Maybe it's the fact that the privacy, the the arguable privacy scoff laws also happen to be gigantic companies that may have monopoly power, and so you attack them where their offenses lie, and in this case, they may lie across the boundaries of privacy and competition. I do find myself as a practitioner in this space thinking sometimes that I got all dressed up and spiffed up for a party and the party didn't happen, by which I mean enforcement. If if these laws matter and we need to get our ducks in a row and encourage our customers to get their ducks in a row, I'd like it to, to be for a good reason. Now, what everyone will say, or many people will say, is that, and I, I welcome your thoughts on this, is that PR, a, a combination of PR, of publicity, a bad article being written about you and consumer or customer outrage or lack of trust is what's going to really be what keeps companies in line. I, I tend to be a natural skeptic in many areas or a natural cynic, but on this one I'm persuadable that there's something happening, that consumers are approaching brands and demanding a more trusting relationship in the parlance of this of this area. But I wonder if, if you're a skeptic. You don't have to be, but I wonder if you're a skeptic that there is a revolution happening in consumer sentiment that's changing these companies or are they saying, call me when the cost-benefit balance shifts?
1: Yeah, I, I think that I don't think there's a revolution. I think there might be an evolution. But, but again, I think we have a very limited number of instances where consumers have gone across the street solely for privacy. They, now, they may go across the street for convenience. They may go across the street because they feel like they've been ripped off. They might go across the street. Uh, be, but a lot of times it's for price. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I mean, how many examples are, you know, of somebody changing from Citibank to Wells Fargo over a privacy concern? I I don't know. You know, a number of the, the financial services companies have had breaches. Have, have those resulted in uh, you know, diminished. You know, have, have customers fled as a result? And I, I don't know the answer to that. But yeah, my, my, no. my sense is that the that the examples of consumers acting on privacy or security with their pockets or their pocketbooks um, are are very limited. So we all like to talk about that, and and heck. I, you know, I've been a privacy professional now for, you know, going on almost 20 years. Um, you know, we, we like to think that uh, that everybody cares as much about this stuff as we do. But the reality, I, I think, is much different. Like I said earlier, uh, you know, there's a percentage of people who really, really care about privacy. And then there's everybody else.
0: I, I, I think you're. Probably right, as you are in many areas, and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But it is interesting, especially in the European context, to consider that the law may have gotten out front, out in front of society. I don't. I'm sure there have been books already written about the genesis
1: of of that, and I don't. And I should read well, them. And the GDPR is a brilliantly written document. I mean, yeah. look, I, I can I can critique it. And, and, but uh, as a whole, it is a masterfully crafted document that was clearly well thought out and clearly has uh, provisions that complement each other that are sort of that thought through. And, and so, absolutely, and, and by the way, it's not just me speaking because most of the rest of the world is emulating GDPR as they create their own uh, privacy laws. And in some places, they're almost doing a, a copy paste of the GDPR. Hmm. Um, but you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about, which, which is certainly worth you know, talking about in the context of consumer perceptions is, you know, consumer perceptions change over time. So in the late 19th century, what, 1883 was the Kodak Instamatic camera came out. You talk about, you know, privacy. You, know, you must uh, have been scandals. so excited.
0: You must have been so excited, Alan, when that happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs>
1: So but but the, the, the thing that is sort of lost on today's world, because now everybody is taking a selfie of themselves and in many respects, you know, and sometimes with little or no clothing on. Mm-hmm. But the idea that a person you didn't know could come to a beach and take a picture of you in your bathing suit was absolutely scandalous. And they, they would literally have signs posted on beaches up and down L- Long Island in New York saying, you know, cameras are not allowed on this beach now you know obviously you know in 150 years things have changed but i would say in the last 10 years things have changed pretty significantly a number of the the things that we now think are super valuable and super helpful would have been unthinkable even 10 years ago Mm-hmm. I remember there was a whole bunch of controversy around Facebook's initial news feed and being able to see potentially what some other people were reading or what other people were commenting on That was, oh my goodness, you know what we, we can't allow that. So so you know part of the part of the story here is that the consumer perceptions are going are, are going to change in terms of uh, what they're willing to give up. Now, I, I don't know that many consumers, have entirely thought through what the value exchange is, and that's a problem, but I'm not sure that's a problem that's necessarily solvable by regulation uh, or by, you know, education or, or something. I just think that's one of those things that, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of tension.
0: As you say, the consumer expectations and, and consumer behavior will evolve, and maybe, riffing clearly here, but maybe the way this unfolds is really more of a business business solution, a business problem. Businesses that want to have the best relationship, the most trusted relationship with their customers will do something creative and different to solve this problem. Maybe they're inspired by the GDPR and their legal and compliance department telling them that they could sacrifice 4% of revenue. Maybe they're inspired by their marketing department who says, hey, we're losing consents because people think that our welcome map, our CMP, is off-putting. Maybe there will be an enlightened CEO who says, this is how we're going to do things. But I, I think that it is possible that we recast this analysis away from the legal and the compliance and the literal and the, and the pragmatic. And we look at it as businesses will serve their customers and please their customers as best they can. And privacy, this is not a new idea, but privacy will become a part of what it looks like to satisfy your customers, just like not to denigrate it or demean it, just like free shipping might for Amazon or two-day delivery or free car wash or whatever it might be. Privacy can be at at least perhaps outside of the most philosophically dogmatically driven jurisdictions privacy can become part of what it means to be a full service, you know, trustworthy business.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, One thing that I've noticed over the last several years is that brands and including publishers are starting to take control of their privacy practices in a way that they hadn't, you know, five to 10 years ago. So you've got large CPG companies who are saying, you know, yeah, we're sitting on these huge data reserves. Now, 10 years ago, they'd say, yeah, yeah, we'll just let, you know. Hand it over to our tech vendors. They'll handle it. They'll handle all the compliance. They'll handle the opt-outs, all all that stuff. And and you know we'll we'll get our cut, and and that's fine. Um, and that way we don't have to a admit that we sell data, and b that we don't have to you know uh, necessarily roll up our sleeves on compliance. And and uh, some of that has changed because of GDPR and even mm-hmm. CCPA. Because now as a brand, there's stuff you have to do. It isn't just you know writing a, a slightly more comprehensive privacy policy. There's actual stuff that you have to do. And I think that's sort of changing a little bit of the mindset. Well,
0: I think we can agree across all of these topics that we are in a time of, of nothing is set in stone and it, no more than it was, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago in this space. And it, it's evolving. I read something today that said, Hey, give, give GDPR, uh, cut GDPR some slack. It's still a pretty young law. And, and to start talking about what it has and hasn't achieved yet is premature. And as you said, it is a a, a a canonical, virtuous presentation of what a major regulation could look like. When people ask me, you know, how do I understand European privacy? I, I non, non-sarcastically say, read the GDPR, read the law. It's it's intelligible. It is relatively straightforward in, in its prose, and it is an example of what legislation that can be effective looks like. Again, it has to be implemented, but I think it is. It's to be applauded. It's it really is to be applauded. I don't want to sound like a sycophant to, to the, the the bureaucrats in Brussels, but it's a great it's a great thing. It, it, they really did a great job with it. Qua legislation.
1: Well, and compare that to the clown car—that is the creation of privacy rules in the state of California. Uh, you know, and I was, look,
0: wo- I was wondering if we were going to
1: take that. Well, leap. <laughs> look—in in fairness to this, to, to the People's Republic of California, um, there's the 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 reality is that. There should be a federal US law. And so, California and Washington and the other places that have or are considering their own laws, they are doing that because the federal government of the US has failed uh, to address what they perceive are the privacy considerations of their citizenry. Um, I I think there's an open debate to be had whether or not it makes sense to create a a GDPR light based on a, a, a referendum. Process. I, I I personally think that that is ripe for confusion and waste of time and money, uh, and and that's sort of where we are here, both with CC, uh, CCPA and and it's uh, and the next gen the Prop Twenty Four uh, law. So conceptually, there are some nice things in there, but you know we're now on version five of the regulation, and 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 this isn't to beat up. Um, uh mr barcera in his office because they're not really set up to do any of this stuff and so of course you have five drafts and they they've swayed back and forth on some key points um and you know that's great for you know somebody who makes their living as a privacy attorney uh not so great from the perspective of a business who's trying to plan for what the rule set is
0: you're exactly right and i think that those those folks who predicted that these major regulations, including GDPR, which I just fawned about, fawned over, these regulations created haves and have nots in the business world as well. I, I, as you know, I have worked for large companies and small companies. The big boys, the big players were able to spend millions, if not tens of millions on compliance and the small and medium-sized companies were not able to do that. And whether or not there is enforcement, they then get to preach to their customers that they are the ones who have figured GDPR out and have figured CCPA out. And it has resulted in a separation between the businesses that already had arguably too much power who could afford to deal with these laws and those who couldn't. And that was not an unintended consequence. That was a known consequence. And as you say, the Vagaries of CCPA in particular were an unfair burden to saddle on some of those smaller and medium-sized businesses in my opinion.
1: Yeah, there certainly was a lot of back and forth and a lot of back and forth on some really key areas and and then there's a the challenge that you know uh, my clients, tend to be the types of companies, and some of them are pretty big, and some of them are much smaller and have lighter budgets, but they tend to be the types of companies who pay attention to this stuff. But when you have five different versions of the regulations, some of which were uh, published long after the law technically went into effect, you have a segment of the marketplace, a significant segment, arguably, that is only half paying attention. So the amount of time that I spend educating uh, my clients, customers, and partners, some of whom still think that we're on rev two of the, of the regulations, uh, has been pretty substantial. And it's, it ends up being a little bit of a, uh, unnecessary waste of of time and resources for folks.
0: We should be skeptical of, of anything that is a boon for lawyers. Should we not?
1: (laughs) I think, I think there's some truth to that.
0: (laughs) Uh, said by two lawyers who clearly uh, like these topics and like each other. And I think with that, we will end. Alan, I am so appreciative that you joined us. I could think of no one better to kick this off with, and I'm sure we'll attempt to have you back on topics that we can only guess right now.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Robert. This was a lot of fun. It's always great chatting with you.
0: All right. Well, until the next time, everyone, thanks for listening. And we promise more informal, but informative conversation. So uh, feel free to reach out to us on LinkedIn or elsewhere, if you'd like to continue the conversation. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Legitimate Interest
1: Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and tell your friends and colleagues about our show. If you have any questions, please reach out to us via email at podcast at or Twitter at catch underscore digital. Thanks and we'll see you next time.